we are in the middle, or we're at the end now, of a series that we've been doing for three weeks, uh, revisiting our threefold purpose as a church, loving God, loving each other, loving the world. We talked a couple of weeks ago about loving God from 1 Peter 2, being a priesthood, remember that, being a priesthood and reflecting God to the world through our character, reflecting the world to God in our worship. Last week we talked from Ephesians 2 about being a new humanity, being a reconciled community of shalom that uh, brings people from across all kinds of divides and divisions to be a united people, reflecting God's intentions for humanity. This morning, we want to visit the final pillar of our purpose, of our, of our existence really as a church, loving the world. And I want to do that from a passage in Philippians, book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible with you, the words will be on screen, but it always is good practice to open up your Bible, have it on your lap. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in in the Roman colony of Philippi in the first century. He had a very warm relationship with the church, good friends. He was encouraged by what was happening. And he writes this letter to continue encouraging them in their witness and their ministry uh, in in the world and within the church. So Philippians 2, just a few verses, uh, starting at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the central image in here that I want to focus on, the the, the central metaphor that Paul is working with is in verse 15. It's the image of stars. He says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky. This is how Paul's describing our calling as Christians. This is how Paul is describing our mission in the world and what it means to love God. He reaches for this image of stars. You will shine among them before your generation, before the world. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now, That's a little bit of a problem for me because when I think about stars, maybe it's just the stage of life, I mean, I don't know. When I think about stars, I immediately think of the twinkle, twinkle variety. Um, You know, this is what I'm reading to Josh. This is what I'm, uh, these are the songs that I'm singing at the moment. So I immediately think of stars as very cute and very childish and very uh, lovely, slightly wimpy, not very substantial, kind of corny images. It doesn't really help me get my head around what God's intention is for the church to think about us as stars. I just think of, you know, shining happy people. We're all just holding hands. You know, it's a bit, it's all a bit uh, shallow. So I thought maybe we'd start this morning by just getting in our minds and in our, in our heads an image of another kind of star. So you're not going to be able to see this terribly well, but this is in fact a picture of the biggest star that uh, has been discovered by the Hubble telescope. It's called Canis Majoris. That's a great name for a star, isn't it? Canis Majoris. It is 3 billion kilometers in diameter. 3,000 times bigger than the sun. So that is a pretty massive star. And maybe in some way that'll just help us get away from kind of the twinkly twinkly image of stars, you know, towards another type of star that stars can also be massively brilliantly beautiful and spectacularly majestic and absolutely huge. Of course, Paul didn't have the Hubble telescope either. 
when he was writing Philippians 2. So we don't want to assume that Paul's talking about Canis Majoris. Uh, neither do we want to assume, though, that he's talking about twinkle, twinkle, little star. What we want to do is try and figure out what Paul meant when he describes the church as being like stars, shining like stars in the sky. Now, that phrase that Paul's using is drawn from another passage in the Bible, an earlier passage in the book of Daniel. It's worth turning back there. It's just a subtle illusion that Paul is making here, but he doesn't just pull this image of stars out of his mind like a random metaphor. He's reaching back into Israel's scriptures, and he's using an image that's embedded in the story of Israel back in Daniel 12. Just turn back there for a moment. It's quite a strange passage in Daniel 12. It's prophecy. It's a book of prophecy largely. And here's where this reference to stars comes in. If you look halfway through verse 1, But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's where this image of stars is coming from. And in its original context here in Daniel 12, this was always, this for Israel, this was always a future promise. This was always about God's future for Israel, that the day would come, God would bring about a great judgment, and Israel would be divided into those who are faithful to God and those who are not faithful to God, and those who are not faithful would be resurrected to what, what Daniel describes as everlasting shame and contempt. But those who were faithful to God would shine. They'd be resurrected to everlasting life and they will shine like the brightness of the heavens and they will shine like the stars. I don't think that means that they would sort of be off in heaven themselves, you know, like these kind of disembodied spirits. I think it's an image to describe what their resurrected life on earth would look like and be like, that they would shine like stars in the heavens. But this was always out there in the future of what God would do when he finally intervened in Israel's history. So it's significant that Paul, when he gets to Philippians 2, takes that image and brings it into the present. That for Paul, when he's talking to the church in Philippi, this idea of shining like stars, it's no longer something that's going to happen just at the end of time. Now it's something he's calling the church to do today. As you shine like stars in this, in this crooked and warped generation, it's something that can happen now. Paul's brought some of the future, some of God's future, into the present for these Christians. Because he knows one man has already been resurrected. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that's changed everything. That's brought some of the future into the present. And that's meant that this resurrection life that God promised at the end of time can start now for those who love and follow Jesus. That resurrection life is about being raised to new life now and sharing in the newness of life and the new creation with God, tasting it now by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Life in Christ. It's resurrection life, and it's now. This is what Paul's saying. But this idea of shining like stars and tasting this resurrection life, it's not just something that's for us. It's not just something that we are to keep to ourselves and hold on to for our own benefit. This is something that we are supposed to shine forth before others. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying there's an outward orientation to this. There was an outward orientation even back in Daniel 12. Because Daniel says those who are faithful to God will will be resurrected to everlasting life. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars in the heavens. You see that reference? 
those who lead many to righteousness. The implication is it's those who extend this life to others, not just those who hold on to it themselves. It's those who offer out this life, this resurrection to other people who lead others to righteousness. They will be the ones who shine like stars in the heavens. I think that's what Paul's getting at. It's this outward orientation. It's loving the world. I think this is what he means even by the next phrase he uses in Philippians 2 where he says, Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now that's not a great translation of that phrase. The word firmly is not actually there in the Greek. It just says, as you hold the word of life. And I think in view of what Paul's saying, and this outward orientation towards the world, he's not talking about holding the word of life in a defensive posture, where we just kind of hold it like a rugby ball for ourselves so no one else can get it. I think he's talking about holding out the word of life. Not holding firmly the word of life, holding forth the word of life. You might even want to change that. If you, if, you, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, if you don't find that sacrilegious, you could just write the word holding out or the word holding forth the word of life in the margin there. Because that's the idea. It's not just holding firmly onto the word of life. It's holding out the word of life for others. That's the mission of the church. We shine like stars as we hold out this word of life, this resurrection life to those around us. This is the mission of the church. This is what it means to love the world. And we've got to be careful when we talk about all this that we remember one really central idea, which is that this mission we have is ultimately God's mission, not ours. Often we think when we talk about missions, you know, we talk about missions being an activity of the church, or even worse, we talk about it being a committee of the church. You know, every good church needs a missions committee, right? That's how we think about missions. But missions comes from the missionary God. God is a missionary God. He is the one who initiated this massive rescue plan on planet Earth. And, and, and He is the one, the Father is the one who sent His Son. The Son is the one who sent the Spirit. And the Father, Son, and Spirit together then send the church. That's how it works theologically. That's the progression. We are a sent community only because the Father has first come looking for us by sending his son. It's his initiative, not ours. That's important. Lest we think it's all up to us and the responsibility is all ours to drag people kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Our activity of mission is grounded in the mission of God, the missio Dei, the mission of God and his purposes to renew and restore the world. All of our efforts at evangelism and outreach and mission are rooted and established in God's plans and God's purposes to renew and reclaim what's been lost. And the steps that we take to hold out the word of life to others should be done in the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us. We've got to remember, he's the Lord of the harvest. We're just workers in his harvest field. It's his mission from beginning to end. And he's going to see it through. But nevertheless, he calls us to be involved. We are the ones through whom this message is going to come. We're the ones who are called and commissioned to hold out this word of life and shine like stars in a broken world, in a dark world. We're the only group on the planet, the people of God, the church, 
that has been entrusted with the word of life. The only group on the planet that's been called and commissioned to hold out that word to other people. That means we are the only people on the planet through whom others are going to hear about it and are going to come to embrace Jesus for themselves. And I know this is a big lofty idea and it's, it's a beautiful vision of shining like stars before the world and it's exciting and it's compelling, but the reality is much more ordinary, isn't it? The reality is the steps that we take day to day, which are often a bit more uncomfortable. I was on a plane a few weeks ago uh, heading down to Christchurch to go and visit the ReChurch team, a church plant that we've got an association with at Shaw. And uh, I, I love flying, I love plane rides, because for me it's, it's uninterrupted reading time. It's brilliant. You know, I knew I had an hour and seven minutes, and this was going to be, I had a great book with me, and I was going to make some serious progress through this book by the end of the plane ride. And uh, as, as we were getting into it, I just felt this, um, this, this prompting, I suppose, this, this nudging to strike up conversation with the person next to me. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't writing in the sky. It was just this gentle prompting in my heart, just strike up conversation. So, of course, I suppressed that very quickly and went back to my book. And after all, can I just tell you, this was a Christian book, all right? So that, I assume that was spiritual enough for a plane ride, reading a Christian book. What more could God possibly want from me? But the voice stayed there, this just this impression on my heart, just this kind of discomfort and disquiet and just this need to strike up conversation. So finally, I, I, I gave in to that and just did strike up a friendly conversation with this woman sitting next to me, a Korean woman, I think, and just asked her what she was doing down in Christchurch. And, and she asked me a couple of questions, asked me what I was doing down there. I said that I was going to speak at a church the next morning. And she was interested in whether I had already had my message written or not. And I said, yeah, I've got that message already written. I'm pretty much ready to go. And she said, oh, you must be very confident. So I don't know. I don't know how you respond to that. I think I fumbled through the next couple of words. I don't know. I mean, it was just nice because most of the time when you say you're a pastor, that's the conversation ended right there. So the fact we got any further than that was wonderful. Uh, and, you know, I wish I, could, I wish I could take you to the part where she knelt on the floor of the plane and gave her life to Jesus and I baptized her right then, you know. That's, I know that's the part you're waiting for because that would have been a good story, right? That didn't happen. Uh, the conversation kind of eventually ended and said goodbye and, and that was it. Now, what's the significance of that? You know, is that, is that a complete waste of time because I never shared with her the steps to salvation? I don't think it was. I think that's a moment. I think it's a seed planted. I think that's something. And who knows in the providence of God how that might be used in some small, insignificant way in that whole journey that that woman's on. And I'll tell you the thing I found as a result of that experience. I think a large part of what God was doing that day was in my heart. Just to sensitize me to the people around me. And to say, hey, get your head out of your book for long enough to be aware of the people around you and who they are and their stories and just take an interest and do what you can. Honestly, I don't feel like I'm any good at this stuff. If I'm just bearing my soul to you, I don't feel like I've got the gift of evangelism. My heart races really, really quick when I get in these situations as well. And I don't have the words to say, but God is teaching me just to be aware of the moments and the opportunities and to do what I can. As people come across my path, and especially in those situations that we have where we are interacting with people regularly, where we are, whether it's co-workers or neighbors, people that we're seeing on a regular basis, taking the steps, just being intentional with them. 
and doing what we can to shine through word and deed and be a witness to those people and reflect something of the resurrection life that Jesus offers to those people as we're able to. As you came in this morning, you've got a little bookmark. Would you just pull that out for a minute and have it in front of you? There's space there to write down three names. And if you're up for it, I'd encourage you to do that, either during the service or sometime today. Write down the name of three people that you know who don't know Jesus. Could be co-workers, could be neighbours, could be family members, could be people at the gym, people in your coffee group, sports team, wherever. People that you know in your sphere of influence and interaction, people you know who don't know Jesus. And I want to ask you to make a series of commitments to those people that are listed there below those gaps so you know what you're getting in for. First thing I want to ask is that you commit this year to praying for them. And this is the easy part. I mean, anyone can, this is not even saying anything to them yet. This is praying. For, I actually think, though, this is the most powerful thing we can do because it brings us back to the truth and reality. This is God's mission, and we are dependent on the working of the Spirit to lift the veil that's over the faces of those who don't know Christ. And you'll find, because I'm finding this right now, that as you bring the names of people to God who you know who don't know Him, something is going to happen in your heart. You're going to start seeing these people in a new way. You're going to start seeing them not just as neighbors, co-workers, family members, and co-gym members or whatever. You're going to start seeing them as lost sheep without a shepherd, just as Jesus saw them. You're going to start seeing them in their spiritual state before God and seeing something of the lostness and the brokenness of their lives outside of relationship for Him. And God is going to start to break your heart for those people just as His heart is broken for them. All because you're committing to praying for them regularly. One of the most powerful things you can do. If you would commit to praying regularly for these three people this year, that would be a brilliant start. Now, beyond that, here's the next challenge. Develop friendships with these people. And not just so that you can share Christ with them, but because you genuinely care about them. Because it's a very human thing to do, to take an interest in their lives, to develop a relationship, maybe have a drink with them outside of work in an appropriate way, in an appropriate context. But build a friendship. Maybe have the water cooler conversations. And as you build that friendship, over the course of the year, try and ask some deeper questions. See if you can discover their stories. I believe that if we want people to give us the time to listen to what we've got to say, we need to give them the dignity of listening to what they've got to say. And not just assuming that that's irrelevant and here's the message you need to hear. I think we need to take time to get to know people to hear where they're coming from, draw out their stories. What's important to them? What do they believe at a deep level? What's driving them? What kind of values are fueling them in their lives? What's the story that's led them to this point? Maybe some of their spiritual experiences, whatever you might be able to draw out, because then you know a little more when they're at, at where they're at, and then you can gauge your next move. And that final step there is to discern next steps for that person. Now, that next step might be inviting them along to something. It may well be inviting them along to introducing God. That might be an appropriate next step. I don't think that's a step for everyone. But it might be. They might just, you might just discern they're in the space, that, there may be a spark of interest there, and I could put that invitation in their hand. I went down and gave an invitation to introducing God to the owners of Columbus Coffee this week, 
And I don't know. I don't know whether they'll come or not. They didn't seem particularly interested. But, you know, it's just a step. It's something. Maybe the step is sharing your story with them. Share, I think it's one of the most powerful things you can do is to share your own journey of faith. What's changed you? What are the influences along the line? Why have you made the decisions you've made around faith and God and life? Maybe if they're a reader, it's putting a book in their hand that would be appropriate. Maybe giving them a message, a CD to listen to. Whatever, you've got to discern where this person is at. Is there another type of event that we run here in the church or, or somewhere else that you might be able to take them to? Maybe they're in a place where it's appropriate for you to share God's story with them. Maybe they're like ripe fruit for the picking, and it really is appropriate to step in and share God's story through Jesus and invite them, even challenge them to leave behind whatever story they've been living and join this story of God's. There's no formula. I'm not going to give you the six easy steps to you know, dealing with unbelievers. You've got to figure this out depending on who the person is. Every time Jesus speaks to people in the Bible, it's contextualized to their situation, to where they're at emotionally, intellectually, socially. Every time Paul preaches a message, it's tailored around the group that he's speaking to. What's going to be meaningful for them? That means it takes relationship. It takes an interest in their life. Engaging. Is this more of an intellectual journey they're on? Is this more of an emotional journey they're on? Do they need all the answers? Or do they simply need to know that Jesus is with them and loves them? Do they need to know that God has forgiven them? What's, what are the barriers to this person accepting Christ? It takes a little bit of thought. It takes a lot of practice and a whole lot of prayer. But these are steps that you can take. It's just simply being intentional. It's the core and the heart of loving the world. So write three names on that bookmark. Keep it in your Bible or keep it somewhere close. Pray for these people, somewhere where you'll be reminded of it. Not somewhere you're going to be accountable to me or the elders or whatever, but just somewhere that you will be reminded before God and keep these people in your, in your prayers this year and take the steps that you can take. Be a little bit intentional with those relationships and you may just help to nudge someone a little closer to Jesus. Now, let me just circle back for a minute to this image of shining like stars in Philippians 2.15. It's an image of shining forth the resurrection life that we have in Jesus. And of course, central to that resurrection life is a person's relationship with God. That's why we're focused on the importance of these personal relationships and sharing this word of life. But the resurrection life that Jesus came to bring is even broader than that. And I think we often assume that the whole mission of God and the whole mission of the church is just to deal with people's personal souls so we can get them saved, so they can go to heaven when they die. And Jesus absolutely died for that. But I would argue that he died for more than that. And that the vision of the gospel and the vision of God's resurrection life on planet Earth is much broader and bigger. It's never less than that. It's never less than a person's individual relationship with God. But it is more than that. It is bigger. There's a song we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World. And we know the first few verses of that, but there's one that we don't often sing, but it's wonderful words that illustrates the point. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I think it's a wonderful image. 
of the work of Christ. He's come to bring the blessings of God as far as the curse of sin is found. As far as the curse has spread throughout human life, society and culture, Jesus has come to undo the effects of the fall, reverse the effects of the curse, and bring resurrection life and healing and wholeness into that world. So God's mission extends not just to people's souls, but way beyond that, because sin extends way beyond that. And so the mission of the church extends to the uttermost reaches of creation. Yes, central to that, I know I need to keep saying it, is people's individual and personal relationships with God. But Jesus has come to bring even greater peace and even greater resurrection than that because sin is damaged more than that. Sin has damaged people's physical and mental and emotional and social and financial well-being. It's affected all of that. Sin has led to dysfunction in marriages and families. Sin has broken down communities and groups and cultures and societies. And if we assume that all that is irrelevant to the purposes of God, I would argue we are reducing the work of Christ on the cross. The cross is cosmic in its scope. God's mission is cosmic in its scope. The church's work and our shining like stars is cosmic in its scope and reaches into every little crack and crevice where the curse of sin has gotten a hold. So beyond these relationships that you're being intentional with, I'd encourage you to lift up your eyes and look for broader ways, other ways in which you might be able to be a blessing. Wherever there are situations of need, wherever there are situations of brokenness, wherever sin has caused dysfunction and disunity and difficulty and hardship, our, our invitation is to bring resurrection, bring life into those situations. I got a call the week before Christmas from Danny up at Columbus Coffee, same guy, same couple that I invited to Introducing God, and he said, you know, we're closing on the Friday before Christmas and we're probably going to have some food left in the cabinet. And uh, we can't reuse it or anything because we're not open the next few days, so I was wondering if you guys, the church, would have any way of getting rid of this food. So I talked to Sonia Thursby in our church, who's got lots of community connections. She put me on to a woman who runs a mental health rehab home in Beachhaven, where people live in. And I rung her, and she said, we'd love it. Any food that's left over at the end of the day, we'll eat it within hours. I'll send people up to Albany, we'll pick it up. If there's more than we can handle, there's another home down the road, and we'll take it to them. It was fantastic. And the, and the most encouraging thing for me is that Danny thought of calling us and associated us with a concern for those who might need some food. And I thought, brilliant, because that's how we want to be known. That's who we want to be. That he would think that we care about that kind of stuff is brilliant. That meant an awful lot, as well as the blessing that that food was to those who got it. This means, friends, that, that maybe you've got a neighbor who needs a fence painted. And maybe you could go to your life group and say, hey, is this something that we could pitch in on. Maybe you know you've got a co-worker who, whose family's moving house and they're a bit stretched with all the kids and so on. Is this something that you as a group could help with, just within your own relational sphere of influence? Are there needs, are, is, are there ways for you to be a blessing? Because it's all part of shining like stars. It's all resurrection life. Is there someone you know who's struggling a bit? Could you put a little gift basket on their doorstep? Someone you know who's just doing it tough at the moment. Maybe just sending a text or a card and letting them know you're praying for them. 
I find most non-Christians don't have a big problem with people saying, can I pray for you? Maybe not like right then and there. I'm not saying lay hands on them in the staff room of the, you know, of the school. But just let them know you're praying for them and you're thinking. It goes an awfully long way to treating people as human beings, especially in what can often be very sterile work environments, to humanize those places and show people the love of Christ can be incredibly, incredibly powerful. Tune into those. Be aware of those opportunities. Ask God to make you aware of those opportunities as you go through your day. And you might just find there's things bubbling away that you weren't even aware of. And maybe the Spirit of God could prompt you into those situations. It's not about more big church projects. We may do those from time to time. But don't wait for that. Don't use that as an excuse. Oh, there's nothing happening at church at the moment. This is every one of us, individuals, couples, families, taking initiative on our streets and in our workplaces, in any sphere of life we're at, to be a blessing and to shine like stars before those who don't know Jesus. And if I could just extend the vision one final step and just extend our horizon one final bit, it even means being aware of needs beyond just people we know, broader issues in our communities, in our nation, and even in our world. The Herald did a series, brilliant series, not too long ago on the growing gap between rich and poor in New Zealand, the growing inequality of wealth that there is in our country. A few years ago, honestly, I would have said the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with that. That the gospel has nothing to do with issues of child poverty, issues of at-risk teenagers, that our job is to focus on saving souls, and that's a distraction. That's for those bleeding-heart liberals who care about that stuff, and they're taking us away from the work of Christ on the cross. But my journey is one of realizing that I had what I would say is a very anemic gospel and a very reduced picture of the fullness of the work of Christ on the cross and the fullness and breadth and scope of the mission of God on this planet. The cross is absolutely central, and I'll never compromise on the importance of doing what I can to bring men and women into a relationship with Jesus. But I've seen that God, Christ died for more than that, and his resurrection life extends as far as human life itself, even into the renewal of the physical creation. So I would say that the gospel has everything to do with child poverty. Everything to do with at-risk teenagers in our society. Everything to do with the AIDS epidemic, with malaria, with teenagers being drafted into the sex slave industry. These are issues the church should care about. Why are we waiting for Bono to lead the way? Church should be out ahead, championing the cause of Christ, telling people about Jesus, yes, and also being Jesus to them in their greatest needs. And I know this stuff is overwhelming. I know it's now a big vista of stuff, and the, the, the default response is too big, too hard, overwhelming. But there is something you can do, isn't there? Is there one thing? Is there one way, whether it's child sponsorship, whether it's joining a program, there's a mentoring program for, for teenage boys in our communities. I think it's called Brothers in Arms. You can join in and, and, and sponsor and be a mentor to an at-risk Teenager, just spending a little bit of time with them through websites like kiva.org 
where you can contribute finances in a microfinance enterprise that will help people in developing countries to get businesses off the ground so they can become profitable and have a better life for themselves. 25 US dollars, you're contributing funds online. There's a myriad of ways you can get involved. And I think it's an excuse just to stand back and be overwhelmed by the size of the problem or to feel guilty and to feel condemned. None of that's helpful. It's simply asking, maybe is there one thing this year I can do? Can you think about this shining like stars at several levels? There is the personal level of being intentional with relationships you have with people who don't know Jesus. There's the social level of looking for ways to meet needs and bring light into darkness and bring resurrection into the shadow of death and to bring blessing as far as the curse is found. And there's the greater level, community, national, international, of doing one thing, choosing one way, where you can shine something of the resurrection life of Jesus into the brokenness and the groaning of our world. In 2010, there was a gathering in Cape Town, South Africa, called the Third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization. 4,200 evangelical leaders were there, 198 countries represented, hundreds of thousands more people through meetings, participatory meetings around the world at the same time. It was a gathering to come together and define a central statement of evangelical belief and commitment to world mission. It's a great document. They produced the Cape Town Commitment. You can go online and read it. And in that document, there's a, there's a statement there around our participation in God's mission. And I want to finish with this today because I think it's something we can and should rally around as one local church and one local expression of what God is doing in the world. Our participation in God's mission. God calls his people to share his mission. The church from all nations stands in continuity through the Messiah Jesus with God's people in the Old Testament. With them we have been called through Abraham and commissioned to be a blessing and a light to the nations. With them we are to be shaped and taught through the law and the prophets to be a community of holiness, compassion and justice in a world of sin and suffering. We have been redeemed through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to what God has done in Christ. The church exists to worship and glorify God for all eternity and to participate in the transforming mission of God within history. Our mission is wholly derived from God's mission, addresses the whole of God's creation, and is grounded at its center in the redeeming victory of the cross. This is the people to whom we belong, whose faith we confess, and whose mission we share. May those words be true of us as we love the world by shining the resurrection life of Jesus into the darkness of this world. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this is your mission and not ours. We thank you that in spite of our failures and sometimes our unwillingness to get involved in what you're doing, you are still at work drawing people to yourself, transforming this world, bringing faith and hope and love to bear on it. Jesus, I pray for the courage for each of us to see the opportunities around us, to see the people, to see the needs, to see the spaces that we can step into to represent something of you. And I pray that we would do it both in word and in deed. Free us from any guilt 
any condemnation and any fear and replace those emotions with a real joy and an excitement about participating in your transformation of this world. Thank you for inviting us into that mission. Give us the strength to partner with you in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.